praise and worship this morning. Uh, I invite you to open your Bible with me to Genesis 33 today. We're going to continue our study through the life of the patriarch Jacob. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is where we find ourselves today. We'll be in, in all 20 verses of that chapter. Growing up, one of my favorite television programs was The Incredible Hulk. If you remember that back in the day, Bill Bixby played the role of Bruce Banner and Lou Ferrigno played the role of the Incredible Hulk. And every program went the same way. Mild-mannered scientist Bruce Banner would find himself in a dangerous situation and he would always tell the bad guys, don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry. And he spent the entire program trying not to make himself angry because when he got angry, he turned to the Incredible Hulk. And as a kid, I used to get angry because he didn't want to get angry. I would say, get angry. Come on, Hulk out. What are you doing? You know, this guy's beating you up. Turn into the Hulk and, and, and pound him into a pulp. But you see, what he understood as Bruce Banner is that he had another side. And that sometimes when he became the Hulk, he did things that he would regret. And in some ways, the fact that he had two different natures in some ways, that reflects who we are as Christians, as Christ followers. You see, we are born sinners with a sin nature, and then when we come to Christ, we become a new creation. But yet we have this ongoing battle between the two sides, the spirit versus the flesh. And Jacob, as a follower of God, comes to see this in our chapter today. And the lesson he has for us is this. Recognize that your relationship with God does not depend upon your faithfulness. Your relationship, your right standing with God depends not upon your ability to stay good. Your relationship with God depends upon God's faithfulness to you and His covenant promises in Christ Jesus. Let me invite you to stand with me if you're able at this time. We'll be in Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 20 and Moses writes these words in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold Esau was coming and 400 men with him so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids he put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last but he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your scriptures. We thank you, God, for the fact it communicates truth to us. Your word is truth. It is your word. And Father, we thank you for being able to follow the life of Jacob here to see how, God, you called him in your sovereign purposes. You called him to yourself and, Lord, you have sustained him every step of his journey. And, Father, as we see him today struggling with this old nature and this new nature, Lord, I pray your word shows us the truth, that each and every one of us stumble in our walk with you. But, Father, we praise you that Christ in his faithfulness has redeemed us and is redeeming us and will keep us saved until glory. Father, let your word speak truth into our minds and truth into our hearts, and I pray, God, we will respond in worship and gratitude towards you. And Father, if there be anyone here today, anyone within the sound of my voice that's never trusted in Christ and his completed work on the cross for their sins, I pray, God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would lead them 
to that decision today. Father, speak through me a word of power and a word of truth. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When we last left our patriarch Jacob, we saw him in a wrestling match. He wrestled with God as he is across the Jabbok River about to enter into the promised land once again. And here, 20 years after he had betrayed and, and threw his, his brother under the bus and had stolen the, the, the blessing that was Esau's by being the firstborn, we see Jacob is now about to come face to face with his brother 20 years after the fact. And when he left, left, left Cain, and when he last left Cain, and his brother had threatened to murder him once his father, Isaac, had passed away. And so here is Jacob entering into the promised land once again, knowing he is about to come face to face with his brother Esau, who he had betrayed. Here we find Jacob hobbled by his wrestling match with God, hobbling on his wounded hip yet hopeful, hopeful that God, who is leading him back into the promised land, hopeful that God will indeed protect him and sustain him through this journey and through this meeting with his estranged brother once again. Jacob, through that wrestling match with God, received a blessing. He also received a new name, Israel, which means striving with God or fights with God. And as we find him in this text today, we see Israel with his new name, his new nature. Israel acted faithfully to the Lord. He acted faithfully to the Lord as he enters back again into the promised land. And the first thing we have in our passage today is the familial reunion. A family reunion. It's Memorial Day. It's, a, it's, a, it's the unofficial beginning of summer. And, and many families have family reunions around Mother's Day. And sometimes family reunions can be a little awkward. There's a little family drama sometimes. Now picture, picture this with me, if you will. Suppose I was bringing my wife and my children to uh, the Raider family reunion, and suppose me and, and cousin Billy Bob had some beef. Suppose I had done him wrong. Suppose I had lied on him and cheated him out of some money. And I was coming up to this reunion knowing he was on the inside. And suppose I said to my wife and my children, okay, Billy Bob's got beef with me and, and we might not be safe coming into this reunion. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in first and then Nancy, I want you to come after me and then Logan will follow and then Kylie and then Jaden. And that way if I go in and he attacks me, at least you all will have the opportunity to hightail it and get out of there. Now, that might sound kind of strange to us, but in some ways, that's what Jacob is doing in this text here before us. He knows he's about to see his brother after he'd spent the entire night wrestling with God and wounded and his hip out of joint. Verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob then lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. And not only Esau, but those 400 men with him. So Jacob's like, what am I going to do here? So first thing we see is cautionary hope. Cautionary hope. He divides his wives and his children and puts them in, in order. He puts the maids and their children in the front, then Leah and her children next, and, and Rachel and Joseph last. Now, put yourself in the situation of his maids or, or their children. You know, it's like, wait a minute now. Clearly some favoritism is being displayed here. 
And you're right. But it should come as no surprise Jacob was doing this in his family because that's the way he was treated as he was raised. Remember it said Rebekah loved Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. There was clearly favoritism in his family growing up, so he had learned that, and now he in turn was doing that with his own family. But yet he continues to move forward. He was there in that moment, in that moment where his life and the life of his family was threatened. He was there because God wanted him there. He wasn't there by accident or mistake or coincidence. He was in that moment because that was the sovereign will of God for his life. God put him in harm's way. I said, why would God do that? Sometimes that's God's will. Sometimes God calls us to risk and to step out and trust him. God to enter into the promised land. And by the way, when you go back to the promised land, you're going to have to confront Esau. And so Jacob says, you know, God, this is your will. I'm moving forward with hope. I'm cautionary about this. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I have hope. I'm going to continue to move forward. Then we see customary humility in verse 3. He himself passed on ahead of them. That's a new Jacob for us. The old Jacob would have put himself in the back and said, y'all go ahead and, and go to that reunion and see how Cousin Billy Bob treats you first. And then I'll come in after you. No, Jacob says, I'm going first. And he goes and he bows to the ground seven times. And picture as Esau is coming, here's his brother walking towards him, stopping, laying down prostrate on his face. Gets up a few more paces, once again bows down prostrate on the ground. Does that seven times. It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of repentance. You see, Esau was born first. Jacob was born second. The proper thing for Jacob to do was recognize the authority of his brother, but yet he stole his brother's blessing. And now he's coming in humility, repenting of what he did to his brother, placing himself back underneath the authority of his brother. And in this, I believe, we see Jacob changed. The old Jacob would not have done that. He would have thought every way possible to avoid that meeting. And if that meeting is going to take place, I need to figure out an escape plan. I need to figure out some way to prevail over my brother because I am better than my brother. But no, this, this is the new Jacob. He's humbled. He wants to make things right because it's the right thing to do. The familial reunions followed by the formal reconciliation. Verse 4, Esau ran to meet him, and Jacob's thinking, oh boy. And he embraced him and fell on his neck, and he's probably thinking, here I go, I just wrestled with God all night, now I've got to wrestle with my twin brother. Really, is this really happening now? And he embraced him and wraps his arm around his neck, and then it says he kissed him and they wept. This was probably the last thing that Jacob expected to happen in that moment. They fell upon him, kissed him, and they wept. It's very similar to the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? When he returns home, the father runs to meet him, falls upon him, embraces him. And this long, drawn-out speech the prodigal son had to give to his father is the reason why he's returning home. There were no words. There were no words in this moment. No words were needed. The embrace the weeping and the kissing that said it all. Jacob is saying, I'm sorry I did you this way, brother. I did you wrong. And Esau is saying, don't worry about this, brother. I forgive you. 
It's a beautiful moment. These two men shared after 20 years of, of being estranged, after, after murderous threats, and, and after all of this problems that they had. Reconciliation. He lifted his eyes and he saw the women and the children. And he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said to him, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And here right now we begin to see a change in Jacob. Jacob's acknowledging that God in his grace has given me these children. The maids came and they bowed and Leah came with her children, they bowed, Rachel and Joseph, and they bowed. And what we see in this, Jacob is humbled, and Jacob is grateful. He acknowledges, I have these wives, these children, these livestock, not because I'm so clever, but because God has graciously provided them to your servant. Your servant. Jacob is humbled. Jacob is grateful. Jacob recognizes that Esau is showing him grace. You see in verses 8 through 11, the financial restitution. Esau says, what do, you, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? Remember, before he crossed the river, Jacob had sent all of these gifts, all these livestock, one group after the other, like waves upon waves upon waves of livestock and servants coming to Esau. And Esau's like, what's that all about? And notice what Jacob says. And he said to him, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. The words grace and favor and gift and blessing show up over and over again in Jacob's communication. <laughs> to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Now, notice the response here. First of all, the blessing is refused. The blessings refused. I did this to find favor with my Lord. And Esau says what? I've got enough. I have everything I need. I don't, I don't need anything you have to give me. I have my own. He says, I have plenty, my brother. Notice Jacob calls him my Lord, and Esau calls him my brother. There has been reconciliation there. There's humility and there's restoration Esau says, look, I'm your brother. I don't need anything you have. I have all I need. But then it goes further, and we see the blessing received. Jacob says in verse 10, No, please, if now I have found favor, if I have grace in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For because I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Now that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? To Esau, you know, when I look at you, I see the face of God. But I think what he's saying here is, I just spent all night wrestling this dude who ended up being God in the flesh. And I was spared. My life was spared. And now I see you face to face, and you have every right, and you have every power to put me to death, and you've forgiven me. You have done to me exactly what God has done to me. You have spared my life. You have shown me grace. And because you have shown me grace, verse 11, please take my gift, please take my blessing, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. So what he's saying, God gave me something I didn't deserve. You have given me something that I don't deserve. And now I want to return my favor and give you what I have. Just as I have surrendered my life and given my all to God, now I want to, I want to restore you financially. I stole your blessing. 
You could have been a lot more wealthy had I not done to you what I did. And now I want to repay you. I want to restore this. I want to show you grace. Jacob had received grace. And think about grace. Grace is contagious. He caught grace and now he wants to give grace. He wants to show grace. I have seen your face as, I, as one sees the face of God. God has dealt graciously with me because I have plenty. And then he urged him and he took it. It's kind of like, here, take it. No, I don't want it. Take it. I don't want it. Take it. I don't want it. Take it. All right, fine. That's part of maybe the cultural custom of that time to do things that way. But I think in the fact that the blessing was received, what Jacob was saying is, I've been blessed beyond anything I could pay you in return. He had received grace from God and now he's extending it to his brother. Sometimes in our relationships, things happen and, and we get strained and, and one person comes back and tells the other, I've changed. And we always look for evidence. Has somebody really changed or not? In our story, these two brothers had been separated for 20 years and now they're back together and it seems like amends have been made has there been change? And it looks like on the surface, it looks like both of them have changed. Clearly Jacob has changed because why? We see over and over again his recognition of God. Three times in this text, the name of God is mentioned and all three times it comes from Jacob's lips. Jacob acknowledges that God is there and God has blessed me and God has shown me grace. Everything I have is because God has given it to me. Jacob has clearly changed. Esau, what do we see Esau saying? I forgive you, brother. I don't need what you have. I have everything. I got plenty. What that tells me, Esau hasn't changed. He was mad that Jacob stole his blessing because he thought materially, I'm going to be hurt in the long run because my brother now has the inheritance. But now that things have worked out good for me and I'm wealthy... I don't need the family inheritance. I don't need what Jacob has. Brother, I'm good now. I'm happy. I'm wealthy. All has all's worked out well. Yeah, you did me wrong, but now I'm wealthy. I'm well off. Esau's mindset and his focus was on the world, on his power, on his possessions, and now that he had both, he's okay. I'm good. There had been no heart change for Esau. But there had been for Jacob. And that's clear in our text. Jacob, here named Israel, acts faithfully to the Lord. But we see something else at play here. Jacob acted foolishly in the land. You see, the new name Israel, we see his newfound faith. But now we see the old name Jacob and the old sin patterns reemerge in Jacob's life. First of all, we see an act of compulsion in verses 12 and following. Esau said, let us take our journey and go and, and I will go before you. And he is inviting his brother, now that we have reconciled, let's journey together, let's go back to my town, let's go back to my city that I have built and let's live there together as brothers. But the problem is Seir, which is where Esau lived, was outside of the boundaries of the promised land. It was outside of Canaan. So Jacob has a decision to make right on the spot. 
His brother says, come live with me, but I live outside the promised land. God told Jacob, I want you to, I want you to live in the promised land. How's Jacob going to deal with this? He deals with it in a very Jacob-esque way. Look what happens. Verse 13, he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant. I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. When all else fails, throw your kids under the bus. Yeah, you know, I would and all, but, you know, it's a school night, you know, but, you know, little Johnny has the sniffles, you know, I just, I don't think, you know, so-and-so's cranky, they need a nap, you know. It's a good way to get out of something. And Jacob, right off the bat, says, you know, I would, but these kids, you know, they're frail. They need, they need to rest. And I'll catch up with you. I'll catch up with you later. You know, he had the proper motive. Don't live outside Canaan. But the method was wrong. He lied. What he should have said is, I've got this covenant relationship with the God of our fathers, and he wants me to reside in the promised land. But that might have reopened some old wounds. Okay, why do you have that, co- uh, that, that covenant promise with God of our fathers? Because well, I cheated you out of it. So out of fear, he lies. Tells, yeah, not, the kids are probably tired. The livestock is probably worn out. But to say, I'll catch up with you later, is an act of compulsion. The text is silent. It doesn't indicate, and perhaps later on he did. The text never says that. So to me, I think his intention never was to go. And I don't think he ever did. But then we see an act of complacency. As Esau said to him, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in your sight. So Esau returned that day and went on his way to Seir. He went southeast. Then Jacob journeyed to Succoth, which is northwest. (laughs) He went in the complete opposite direction. But what's even more interesting is the point where they met for Jacob to journey northwest, guess what he did? He left the promised land. Succoth was outside the boundaries of Canaan. But it was a a, a good place for livestock to graze and to rest. And so perhaps his thought was, I gave all of these animals to Esau. I need my animals, I need my flocks to build back up. And if I stay in this place, it's a lot better than it would be down there. And so I'm going to go up and I'm going to build my resources back, use a little bit of my ingenuity, recoup some of my losses, and then go to Canaan. He became complacent. Instead of doing clearly what God told him to do, he said, you know what, I'll get to it eventually. Just not right now. It's not convenient for me right now. And we're guilty of that sometimes. God clearly calls us to a task. He clearly calls us to a ministry. He clearly calls us to witness somebody. And we say, yeah, I will, just not right now. It's not a good time for me, God. i got other things I need to take care of first. Then I'll get to that. It's complacency on Jacob's part. Then we see an act of compromise, verse 18 and 19. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. 
Notice that statement. Jacob came safely. After 20 years of danger, toils and snares, after 20 years of that, God's promise to him was true. God said, I will bring you back to the promised land. He promised him that at Bethel when he appeared in the vision of the, of the, of the stairway to heaven. He said, I will protect you. I will preserve you. I will keep you. He did that. God's word is always true and trustworthy. There were times it looked like it wasn't going to happen, but God made it so. You can always trust God to keep his word. God's promises are forever faithful. Jacob returned safely to Canaan. But the problem was he came to, came to Shechem, not quite to Bethel, almost, just not quite. What was the problem with Shechem? So he came there when he left Padam Aram and he camped before the city and he bought a piece of the land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. Now Shechem was the name of the town. It was also the name of one of the sons of Hamor. So a little confusion there. There's a guy named Shechem and there's a town named Shechem. Which was named first, we don't know. Nevertheless, Jacob buys property next to the city. God told him to go back to Bethel. God told him to be a pilgrim and a stranger and a sojourner in the promised land. And what does Jacob do? He buys property right next to this pagan city. It's like he's trying to buddy up with the idolaters and the immoral people that already live there. Instead of separating himself from all that, it's like he tries to get as close as he can without actually living in the city. He was compromising his integrity. He was compromising his faith. And how guilty you and I are of doing that same thing every day. We try to see how close we can get to sin without actually jumping right in. We try to dip our toes in it for a little bit and swirl it around and say, yeah, it feels kind of good, but I'm not, I'm not all the way in it. I'm not all the way in it. Just a little bit. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to dip my toe in. I'm going to get out, and I'm going to be okay. There's danger in that. And Jacob and his family are going to pay the price dearly for this compromise in the next chapter. We'll see how that plays out. An act of compromise. Finally, we see an act of commitment in verse 20. Jacob journeyed, oh, I'm sorry, verse 20. Then he erected there an altar. He built a place of worship and he called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. So even though he had lied to his brother, even though he had slowly obeyed God, even though he had partly obeyed God, even though he had compromised his spiritual morality, he still had within him that new nature that desired to worship God and give God the glory. And you might, see, you might say, that, that just smacks with hypocrisy. And you're right. And you and I, as Christ followers, we're guilty of the exact same thing. On the one hand, we're lying, cheating, stealing, and, and, and trying to get as close to sin as we can. On the other hand, we're praising God, and we're glorifying God, and we're building altars so everybody can see, I'm committed to worshiping the one true God. I am a Christian. Look at me. And yet, from time to time, our actions and our words demonstrate just the opposite. But such is Jacob. He is a man with this old nature that's self-centered and self-righteous 
and self-serving. But he's also this man, Israel, with a new nature and a newfound faith in God and a newfound desire to do what's right in the sight of God and obey Him. And those two natures are at war with one another. You see, his faithfulness, it ebbed and it flowed. Sometimes he was faithful to God, other times he wasn't. Sometimes he worshipped God, sometimes he sinned. It's back and it's forth. The good news for Jacob is that his relationship with God did not depend on his faithfulness. The good news for you and I is your relationship with God does not depend on your faithfulness. It depends on the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus came... And Jesus humbled himself. And Jesus was obedient, not just part of the time, not just when it was convenient for him, but he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The faithfulness of Christ to do the will of his Father, to die on the cross for your sin, is what promises you and what guarantees you your forgiveness of your sin and your relationship with God. It's based on the work of Jesus, and it's applied to you by faith. If you trust in what Christ did for you, God preserves you and God keeps you by His grace. And the good news for you and I is that it's not dependent on our ability to stay good enough for God. Because none of us ever will be good enough for God. Recognize that your relationship with the Lord does not depend on your faithfulness And you see, it wasn't just Jacob. Paul identifies with this exact same struggle. Romans chapter 7, verse 21 and following. I find, Paul says, then the principle that that evil is present in me. This is Paul, the great apostle. Evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul understood this this dual nature that we have that's at war, the spirit and the flesh. And he understood himself. He was a wretched man. He could not win that battle on his own. And he said, praise be to God. The victory is in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There, are no, there is no judgment from God for those who have come to Him humbly and repented of their sin and trusted in the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Paul understood faith was the victory. The same is true for you and I. One thing we need to understand though, this does not exempt you for seeking a life of holiness. Just to say, I know I've got this old sin nature and I can't lick it on my own, I can't beat it on my own, I might as well just go ahead and sin. You know, Jesus died for my sins, I'm forgiven. I might as well just embrace all the immorality I can because I can't fight it anyway and just let the blood of Jesus take care of that and just live life the way I want to live. Problem is, that's not biblical Christianity. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That means every day we war and we struggle and we fight and we do not give in to temptation. If we do, Christ is there with His grace to forgive us, yet our hearts are broken over our sin 
and we repent and we confess our sin and then by the grace of God we find ourselves in a situation where we try to do better the next time. But the good news is our, our, our faith, our salvation is not dependent on that. However, we are not excused. We're not excused from seeking holiness in our lives. Billy Graham once told a story of this Eskimo in Alaska and he would go into the village every weekend. He had these two dogs, a black dog and a white dog. And he trained them to fight one another. And he would take bets every week on which dog would win. And every week the Eskimo left making money because he somehow knew every week. One day, one week the, the black dog would win, another week the white dog. And, and it was always mixed up. But he always knew. One day somebody asked him a secret and he came clean. And he said, here's what I do every week. I feed one dog well and I starve the other dog. The dog that's well fed has all the strength. The dog that I've starved is very weak. The weak dog loses every time. What you and I need to do as Christians is learn that concept. We need to feed the spirit and starve the flesh. Even though our salvation's not dependent on it, we as believers need to seek to live a holy and righteous life. You need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And even like Jacob, if you stumble and you fall along this journey, trust that God has still got you. And because God has still got you, you seek to live your life in gratification or, 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 or gratitude and affection for the one who loves you in spite of you and your two natures. Let's pray together.